You're a teacher, right? I am. I mean, you're a professor, but you know, yeah. t- teaching is a big part of what you do. I hope to be a good teacher. Mm-hmm. 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 What's the question? Have you ever, well, I don't know. Will you even want to answer this? Oh. What's, have you ever, what, what, what's a teaching moment that you're really embarrassed about where you think you just did something wrong? Oh, well, okay. This is going to sound a little bit, this isn't quite as funny as it, it you know, I'm, I'm wrecking my brain for some really good ones, but probably yeah. one was like, I very self-righteously explained to the class that they could not have their phones in class mm-hmm. and that if their phones rang, I would come and answer them Oh, because I've done that before. Classic. It's funny. It's mm-hmm, like, ha mm-hmm, ha. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. it's your mom, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, right as I was doing, well, well, right after I did that, my phone rang, <laughs> and I didn't have it turned off, and it was my dad. Oh, but yeah. So that's probably. Did the you put him on of, speakerphone and like? I should have. I did answer it in front of the students because I felt like it's only. Well, you fair did say you did say that I would, phone answer, I would answer it. It was yeah. my own. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, "Hi, Dad. Can I call you back? Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> See you later." This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm an author, professor, historian, and I have never seen an entire episode of The Simpsons. Go home and do that. (laughs) I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and perhaps to your surprise, I was and am a huge fan of Downton Abbey. Wow. Today we're talking about teaching and teachers. What makes for great teaching? And what we've done as teachers that has been horrible. (laughs) We interview the artist Tim Timmerman, a renowned teacher of the year at his university about creativity in the classroom, making art, and taking criticism. And during our segment, Kitch Corner, we talk about those teachers who blend spirituality, lifestyle branding, and education, namely gurus. I got to get a guru in real life. I got one word for you. Goop. Join us. Join us. What was the class reaction to that? They laughed. They took it in stride. I think. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, but I was kind of embarrassed. How about you? Oh man, I, I have I have so like pretty much like every week I probably have like a moment where you know I come down too hard on a point or I insist <laughs> on something and it's just like later I'm like yeah that's probably wrong <laughs> yeah or yeah. you know I just but one thing that comes to mind and I just remember this because I had to write about it for something recently is that. I wanted, I was trying to come up with this concept of having a book club in a class. Oh, right. And I okay. Did, and You've done that before in class. I have. Right? I've done it many times. It's Good a, idea. It's, it's the, my book club teaching idea is an idea that's gone through many iterations, though, to its okay. current form. Where essentially the idea now is it's come to work, I think, decently well, yeah. give or take, is that students gather in small groups just to get excited about reading. Like, And many students will say, oh, this is like the first time I've really read a full book. Oh, wow. Like just at one shot, just to read a book. And that's and that's what it's for. But That's great. In its earliest, in its first failing iteration, I tried to do it with the whole class all at one time. And I made like all of these really intricate rules, like (laughs) rule number one, everyone must have the book in front of them. Rule number two, everybody, no one can talk twice until everyone has spoken once. Now, was this in print form? Print form. Oh, nice. Print form, everybody in the same room. Serious. That's very serious. And it was like, I thought the discussion was going really well and people were, and but I was like grading them on their performance in front of everybody oh, on the wow. spot. That's and I'm like intense. sitting with a notebook. I didn't realize how intense it would be and also what a stupid teaching idea. And I came the class, but but I thought it was great. Uh-huh. And so I came the class period after. This is my first semester teaching in my current oh, position. Man. And I said, Hey, I just want to do a little, you know, I want to do a little QA, a little debrief. feedback, debrief. Yeah. Fully expecting that my 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 chest would swell with pride. <laughs> they were literally all like, that was the worst thing I've ever done. <gasps> Like, no. what were you thinking? Like, why would you make everybody talk <laughs> once more? And I was like, okay, okay, how about someone else? Okay, oh no. My and it just kept going off the rails. And so I realized at that moment what I really needed to do. And I, and I kind of, I, I recouped after that. And I, I consulted some elders, some elder teachers. That's and they were like, nice. yeah, what you should have them do is is just do it in smaller groups so they don't feel this pressure. And, you oh, sh- and maybe right. you shouldn't be there. And and that's how that came. So a classic tale of of failure leading to something better. But that's great. Yeah, that's just, a just very nice all story. Of my all of my worst tendencies though in the classroom, like just to try to control everybody, every almost to make the classroom like a staged play in which I say what everyone says. <laughs> You're the a director. Fake, a fake conversation. Yeah, You're I'm like, directing. Action. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so awesome. bad. So bad. Well, that's a really good segue, actually, because dear listeners, we're talking. Um, this this episode is entitled "The Teacher," and we're talking about. 
um, depictions of teachers and um, our own aspirations as teachers. I know we both want to be, I mean, I think, you know, in my fantasy world, I'm like the great teacher, you know, that some student had, which in reality, they have lots of good teachers and they probably don't remember a ton about my class. But, you know, all of us aspire to be. Is there a particular teacher, like a, a represented in film or television oh, yes. or something that is like, you know, the teacher you would love to be? The pop culture teachers that we all know and love. Okay, for, yeah. okay. I've got a couple of examples, but I want to mention a type scene that I find particularly funny. Oh, okay, yeah. A, a scene that you see in a lot of movies, like they'll depict a college classroom and it's always near the end of class and uh -huh, it's always like a uh -huh. riser, kind of like stadium seating. And there's always a chalkboard in the front. Right. And like the bell rings and the and then everyone's like scuffling and the professor's like, remember to read chapter three, everyone. Right. That's always the last thing that's said as if that's how professors give reading assignments by like shouting them out as people are running out the door. <laughs> right. And then somebody will come up to the teacher, at, the professor afterward. Like I feel, does that scene not occur in a lot of films? Oh, like yeah. They'll use, like that's what a professor is. A professor has a chalkboard. A professor is usually a male in these settings. Although I thought of, of some films where there are female professors too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, but that scene of everyone running out. I, I use this in classes. I always say to students, don't, you don't have to pack up early. So like rustle your bags so I know it's time to leave. I know when the class ends. Trust me. <laughs> That's a good I should say. I that. I know. You don't have to remind me by, you know, shuffle your stuff around and oh, blah, I know. It's so know. annoying. Don't it's so do annoying. I hate that so yeah. much. Don't do that. Yeah. Um my my spouse was a a, a preacher for a long time. Same thing. It, mm -hmm. it drives pastors crazy too. Um but yeah. I, well, the scene that I thought you were going to say, kind of the iconic scene <laughs> when you said the stadium seating yeah. was the one like there are a couple different you know, um, stereotypical scenes where someone gets called out on something like, oh. you know, Mr. Stone's like that teachers yes. are like waiting yes. to put someone on the spot the and humiliate technique. them yes. in front of people. I don't even know. I, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. Well, you should come to my classes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. I thought, well, the classic movie from like the 90s, I think, uh -huh. when we were growing up was Dangerous Minds yes. with Michelle Pfeiffer. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, man. She comes into like, and she's like, you know, a, a, a petite, like white woman. And she comes into an inner city classroom. Oh, yeah. And she gets like, you know, at first she's totally rebuffed by the class. But then she discovers like techniques to like win them over, which I think involves throwing candy bars out into the group at some oh, point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I always feel like in those kind of, because like the, the white woman in the urban teaching context mm -hmm. is something of a... Yes. often repeated cliche. Yes, yes. Um, Why do you think people keep repeating that teaching cliche? Like just because oh, it geez. seems, because it feels awkward and it, and, it, and it ratchets up tension for people? Oh, well, okay. Immediately I just go to like historical kind of trends about like the way that white women are often put on this domestic pedestal and upheld as like the ideal version of womanliness, which mm -hmm. is very a, a very racialized construction of like what the ideal woman is and so i think that in some ways it's like recreating like this domestic sphere wherein she is like the ideal like surrogate mother which so oh. there are like a lot of reasons to criticize that model yeah, yeah, yeah. I so think. that's a little bit of a pernicious reading there like we, yeah, have, we have to bring in pernicious. we bring in yeah. like white savior woman to come into yeah. the inner city and do her thing i tend of. to kind of interpret it that way um I mean, I haven't seen Dangerous Minds. The only reason why I know I know that movie for sure, I know that movie, yeah. was because of the very famous pop song that was associated with it, Coolio's. Oh, yeah. Ben's Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what yeah. else it reminds me of, too, Dangerous Minds? Like, yeah. plot-wise, even though a very different environment is Dead yeah. Poets Society, of course, with Robin yes, Williams. Yes. Now, what is similar about Dangerous Minds and Dead Poets Society mm. in terms of the plot? Both have a plot which has... A, kind of like an unorthodox teacher come into a situation. Right. That's a common one. And what happens to the unorthodox teacher? They win the students over, but not, but not the administration. But not the administration. Also, yes. Also, doesn't that happen in To Sir With Love? I don't know. With what Sidney that is. Poitier? Yeah, that's. Oh, I really. You, the film I do historian like the old critic, ones. Yeah. You, you would know. But yeah, okay. So I, I'm suspecting you could probably, people who know more about these like teachers and professors in film, could find this motif more frequent. Mona Lisa Smile. Yeah, with Julie Roberts, does that not also contain a motif where the teacher comes in initially awkward or mm -hmm. initially a problem, and she's a professor, but wins over the students, uh huh, but then is somehow shuffled out or hurt or fired or some comes into some kind of conflict with with the overpower, yes, with the administrators, and what does that, what does that little myth encode? What does it tell us about how 
these media want to portray teaching and teachers and like what's ideal and what's not? Well, I mean, okay, I'll give my answer and and then you should give yours. Mm -hmm. I sort of think of it as like this to me seems like the iconic counterculture 1960s like the the profe- the ideal professor of the 1960s was like leading protests like anti-war protests and maybe it's cuz we're coming off of um talking about Ken Burns the Vietnam War yes, but I'm thinking yes. of like that professor is like the ideal professor and that involves this sort of damnation upon the man kind of thing right. um instead of saying okay I'm going to stick it out in this particular institution and hopefully make it better through my interactions with the, with the mm-hmm. students and by hopefully like contributing to an institution that mm-hmm. promotes the thriving of all. Yeah, it's a very an- anti-institutional yeah. message. Well, Wendell Berry, a writer we've we've mentioned on the show for good or for ill in the past, has has written about this mo- motif of leaving and said like this is the most American of myths, the idea that you leave. Yes. It's like Huck Finn. That's right. Like you yeah. leave that that's America's story, Huck Finn, because Huck Finn because it's racist and because Huck Finn leaves, right? Yeah. He goes away. Okay. He mm-hmm. he and that's like the idea you don't stick it out under the rules in a system. You don't you don't learn to deal with other people. You in other words, just like Huck Finn, you never have to grow up. Well, I could see the temptation of that as a professor. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you be, because you know, you have in many instances, you have an intense relationship with your students it might be one-on-one i mean more often it's just like with with an entire class at least Mm -hmm. for me it's Mm -hmm. like oh we went on this journey together it was so wonderful but it's only 15 or 16 weeks and then you're done and then like the longest relationship you'd have with students would be four years in our setting in a liberal arts type setting and so i can see how like i can see how teachers get put on pedestals but also how they might be kind of emotionally stunted because you're kind of this heroic figure, mm-hmm. but your students don't really know you, you know, like all of your foibles as well. What do you think about that? Oh no, totally. It's 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 exactly true. And I I think ideally you you do you would track with a student, like say a college professor would track with a student or a group of students over a period of years. But yeah, I, I've felt both I felt both like a hero in that system, but also a victim too. Yeah, I mean that so? that snapshot. Well, it, like you said, it's easy to feel heroic. Like let's say you pull off a great feat of teaching of some kind, yeah, and people remember you very happily for that. But that's not like the real you, the totality of you. It's people making a projection about what they wish or feel is good about them, their own selves, onto you. And maybe if you're lucky, the best you can do is be that kind of screen or that canvas onto which people can project their thing. That's true. If it's good, if it's bad though. You're in trouble. You're in trouble because then it's like people are, or if people just get a certain, I, I know there have been times, it's not like an overwhelming experience for me, nor a particularly hurtful one, actually. I'm just sort of joking about it. But I think students sometimes get an impression of me in classes that I don't have of myself at all. And that's certainly not everyone has. You know, this idea like I'm super mean and really rigorous and stuff <laughs> like that, which I don't, it's just weird. Like I I just don't know that a lot of people or or certainly not all people whom I've had classes with would actually think that about me. But when people do, they do. And they really, they take it far. I think there could be a benefit to that in some ways. Yeah, how so? Well, because then they might be less, well, I don't know. You tell me. Are they a little less likely to come to you with like small complaints? Maybe, yeah. I probably do cut off that kind of stuff. That's maybe, kind of good. Maybe I, my like teacher, I mean, do you th- do you not think that teaching in some ways is like acting? Oh, exactly like acting. Like you have a persona. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, that's the part of it. At least for me, I think it's like acting or like any any kind of preach, like preaching public, uh, like a political speech or something like that. Mm -hmm. At at least for me, when I'm when I've had the most fun in in like a traditional lecture environment, I felt like I was. like a circus, what do they call the person who's the ringleader in a circus? Like, yeah, yeah. Here, you know, like we're going to go through all these exciting <laughs> things and it's going to like kind of a hype person, you know, yeah. for whatever topic. And it feels so great, you know, like when you have gotten like an, a, a group of people to consider a big idea with you and mm-hmm. it's energizing to them. So, yes, it's, it's a performance for sure. Oh, totally. I think that's probably a teaching metaphor that's not often used. Like I could see like teaching books written like the teacher as Sherpa or the teacher yeah, as yeah. guide in the sites. Like, no, Shepherd. the teacher as ringleader, <laughs> that's, as circus master. It's probably because I come from 
a religious tradition <laughs> that is very performance oriented. Yes, and yes. so yeah, so it it could be that it's just like you know, that's my ideal. Here's Doctor Payne. Here she is shooting out the t-shirts with t-shirt cannons into the classroom and stuff like that. So, as a biblical scholar, are there any like are there teachers that you've particularly admired, and are there like teachers from the biblical text that have taught you a lot? Oh, wow. When I think of the first one, the teacher that I've admired, I just, my mind, I don't know, you know, there's so many options and I've had, I've just had like, like you have too, like you could just go, I could go on and on. Like I, I could fill this whole oh, podcast only just naming yeah. the names of teachers who have just, and so I'll just, I'll just, I can't even go there. You know, like sure. my doctoral advisor, Peter Machinist um, at Harvard was a fantastic mentor figure to me personally and in the classroom in a lot of ways. And it's something that built over five years that I was with him. But the, so it's like, you know, I, I could, I could end with him cause he's the last one and then go back formally all the way to my undergrad, all the way to high school. But I, my mind is, is fixated on, on one particular professor. I had my first Hebrew teacher um, in my undergrad, his name was Mark McLean. And I think of him because he passed away just three weeks ago. Oh, um, I saw that on your Yeah, yeah. I posted media. a little a little tribute to him. On, and, I, and I found out that he passed away weeks after he actually did. And oh. I, I was, so it was kind of sad that I, I just missed that because of just very, because of Facebook's algorithm, no doubt. Um, right. And the things that they think I'll be interested in and they're wrong that I'm interested in. But anyway, anyway, he, you know, the thing is he had um, Parkinson's disease, which he can, he came, oh, came wow. down with or contracted. I'm not sure what the right terminology is in his early thirties. And so as he was finishing his doctoral work, he was really starting to show signs of that. And by oh, the time, and so, but you know, people with, with Parkinson's really don't live for very long. I guess there's some averages and they're pretty short five to 10 years. And he lived for many decades, like 30 years or something like that. And just lived this full, rich life as a professor. Sometimes the, the disease was so debilitating, he couldn't even come to class. Oh my gosh. And I, it was a lesson that I don't think I could have noticed at the time because I was just an ungrateful brat in that class. <laughs> just an underperforming, ungrateful, unworthy brat. And, you know, just thinking like, who's this professor? Da, 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 you know, and I think we were just not, we just didn't get it. But like, to look back on that and think about that as an image of the professor, someone who's, you know, Someone who, in his case, is literally disabled, but we all have like these deficiencies, right? And that somehow we have to go up in front of potentially ridicule, misunderstanding, whatever, whatever may come, come what may, and just do the thing. Wow! To have been a faithful example of that, there's a deeper kind of current there that transcends any particular great classroom moment or anything. So I think of that long, that long faithfulness in the same direction, to use that phrase. Oh wow! That that he really embodied in that sense. And I think that goes back to your point earlier about how this, the kind of like the movie teaching myth was all about, you know, go in, make your splash, and then you right. leave when the man gets you down. You know, it's right. like, geez, you know, like the man, do you think the man got my professor, Dr. McLean down? Yeah. Like, you know, he was just in all kinds of ways, right? Like life dealt him this bizarre hand. Right. And he just like did this thing through it and just like thrived. And so for me to think about him, when I think about good teachers, it's not like I'm thinking of any kind of like zinger of a moment, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm thinking back onto like what he was and what he did over a lifetime. But he, wow. had, he had to stick with it to show that and he did. Wow. So that's what I'm thinking about. That's really deep. What, <laughs> what about you when you think about like great teaching experiences? I know it's probably hard to like isolate oh something, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say, when you've spent your whole life in education or much of it, then you've just you've come across so many great teachers that yeah. it really is hard to to narrow them down to one. I mean, I I think about um, yeah, oh man, my dad was my seventh grade teacher. Really, my dad was a great teacher. No way. Yeah, in a private school or public school? Private. Really? Yeah. Wow. And yeah, and I didn't we know that. he was like social studies. Uh, I think if I I don't even remember what he taught. That's he was cool. really good. My dad is like the kind of person who's really. He gets excited about topics. I think I probably get that from him. But mm -hmm. anyway, so, you know, there are people like that that are I'm very close to. But um, and then there are these sort of professors. I one of them uh, comes to mind and I I doubt that she's listening to this podcast. So I'm, I'll just say <laughs> um, Amy Jill Levine was a really important mentor of mine. She's a New Testament scholar. Um, at, at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And the thing about her that I thought was so fascinating was that she had that like definitely iconic professor persona. So she's got her shtick that she mm -hmm. 
you you'll regularly see her as a talking head, you know, on like usually around Christmas time if they're going to talk about the virgin birth or if they right. you know she's great on TV. Right. So she's got like that kind of rock star personality part of her. Mm-hmm. Um but she's also what a lot of people don't know because they're a little bit intimidated of her is that um when you're one of her students, she's like the most caring mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So I had a family member go through a health crisis and I mean, you know, I I wept in her office about it and she was like so caring and so kind. And so, mm-hmm. and she, you know, offered to visit me once when I was in the hospital. I mean, she was just like in, in really um, concrete ways, yeah. just a really caring and loving yeah. person. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think she, she's a teacher that comes to mind as someone who, she she's she does historical critical work. So I took one class from her, and I went into graduate school thinking that I was going to do like theological ethics. I took one class from her, and then I was like, "Oh, I'm a historian." Like I didn't realize wow. like how creative and how generative mm-hmm. that could be. Um, and then eventually, I went on to study with another great um, teacher, Kathleen Flake, who is like one of the finest um, historical minds I've ever um, come across. And both of them, I think, modeled a kind of um, strength as a female professor, like who um, could, who who had mastered their craft, and, but then also was really caring. So yeah, it was just they were great examples. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like I could go on and on. Oh, There's I know. Just so many great. Well, teachers. you can hear us getting weepy here about our teachers yeah. because this is what it means to be a professor. Like we've never left school. Yeah, in a I sense. love these people. We just do school, and there's like this love that just transcends everything. Like this, like we met our teachers like up in the stream of the logos that flies above all things, <laughs> right. the stream of ideas and the great wisdom of old. <laughs> and so you form a bond in that kind of yeah. relationship that's actually. It's beautiful. Lifelong, yeah. you know, really that. Now, speaking of lifelong bonds and beauty, do you remember Mr. Belding from Saved by the Bell? I was going to bring him <laughs> up. Oh, my gosh. The Saved by the He's Bell universe. on my computer. Is he on your computer? Okay, so the Saved by the Bell universe was an iconic mm-hmm. depiction from the 90s from our childhood <laughs> in terms of like Principal Belding. Principal Belding. Yes. And, and all the and, and all the teachers and the episode with the substitute, you know, who's like the cool substitute. Totally. And then they learn that like their actual teacher, even though he was mean and like Mr. Belding is actually like a good guy. Like a good and teacher. And the substitute is like, you know, the teacher who lets you like throw your homework in the garbage is actually <laughs> a loser, even though it seems like candy in the moment. You know? Right, right. Some, oh, yeah. Some deep, dark lessons there, friends. What, <laughs> what else true. did you have on your list? Anything? Oh, um, okay. So I did have... I did have to start with love. I had I, I like Googled teaching movies and I was trying to find the ones that I thought were really great. But to be totally honest, I think that um the teachers uh, I well the, the the teacher that I and this is sort of like a tangential teacher. Um so I looked up um Oh, shoot, I'm forgetting it again. The Robin Williams one. Oh, the uh, the Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, which I've never seen in its entirety. I always fall asleep during it. Apparently, people love it. But apparently, that movie it's to be loved. But what came up when I googled that was Goodwill Hunting. Oh, and he's a professor in that one too. He is, yes. and actually, a depressed I professor. Love that depiction, kind of like a fail. Well, his friend sees him as a failure, right? Yeah, but what you find out through the course of the film is that he's the one who's become yes. like he's the really dedicated teacher, yes. and he's in the community college kind of setting. And his friends like you could have done such great things. Yeah. He's like, you know, I am like, doing great things. You yeah, know, all that kind of stuff because it was like based in like human relationship and love so that one really gets yeah, yeah. to me okay so for professors and teachers out there um if you want some chickens chicken soup for the professor's soul <laughs> watch the coen brothers movie a serious man really yeah yeah yeah. There, there's a depiction of a professor at the center of that movie larry gopnik and it's 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 a, it's a loopy black comedy okay so be be forewarned for loopiness and dark <laughs> comedic elements but just to see it's like a professor whose life is unraveling Oh, around nice. his around the tenure decision and things like that, and his you know, <laughs> See, it's it's fantastic. That sounds actually kind of realistic, which oh, it's could great. mess with me a there's, little. Bit. There's a great scene that I think actually encapsulates what's 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 amazing about teaching, and which is there's a student who's trying to bribe him. <laughs> And he calls the student in and says, what are you doing? You can't just give me an envelope of cash. You can't do that. And the student's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <gasps> and he's like, you gave me this. And he's like, no, I didn't. He's like, I just, you just literally did. So he gives the money back to him. And then later the kid shows up at his house with his dad. And the dad <laughs> hands him the money. And the professor's like, look, you can't bribe me. 
He's like, we're not bribing you. He's handing him the cash. He's like, what do you, what do you mean you're not bribing me? And the dad <laughs> says, embrace the mystery. We are here with Tim Timmerman, professor of art Welcome, at George professor. Fox University. It is an honor. It is an honor <laughs> to be here. I have just admired your podcast since since its uh, birth. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. You have. I, you were Tim was our first Instagram follower. We're yeah. so excited to have him here Do because he also like makes many appearances in our departmental meetings because his artwork is on the walls. Oh yes. Of Here our we go. Tim's an artist. Lounge. He's a beautiful artist. Tim's art. a beautiful artist. Tim has had art across the United States, galleries, shows, Here we go. homes, internationally. Offices. Have, not well. Any art in Canada? No, Israel once actually on okay. a little travel. So internationally, internationally, so internationally, he's an international so internationally and nationally <laughs> known artist. <laughs> it was like a mail art show or something where you just send it through the mail. Do you know why we actually wanted? To, do you know what we want to talk to you about though? I hope art comes up, but it's not art actually. There you go. Okay. But it's, uh, I believe we're talking about teaching. Yeah, today. yeah, it's teaching. And Tim is, of course, not this past year, but the year before, or the year before that was the teacher of the year at George Fox University. Out of all the professors here at George Fox. There we go. Yeah. Out of everyone at our university, Tim Timmerman rose to the top. Well, or something. <laughs> I, or I paid someone off or, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we just wanted to chat about teaching. I don't know, just just freewheeling. It doesn't have to be anything in particular. It can, can be anything that you want, like... Can can I start with a question of you guys? Because you guys Ooh. are very good about asking each other questions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yes. Okay. Oh, like, he knows the vibe. I know. Oh, no. Okay. I want to know, like, like most humbling or worst teaching moment in a classroom. I know <laughs> that's funny. Like we started we this episode asked each asking that. each other that exact question, but okay. I can think of more too. So okay, I will. Can you think of another? I will answer. Okay, you go first. Um. Okay. I mean, you know, I just. This is a mundane example, and it's not specific enough to be really funny. Um. But. I think my worst teaching moments are honestly when I'm just, I'm frustrated. I feel harried. I've just been running from thing to thing to thing. I haven't had time to think. And this happens a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it'll often be in bigger settings. And I go into lecture and I'm just prancing around. And sometimes I'll get into what I think is a groove teaching. Yeah. And people maybe laugh at a joke or something, but I leave and I just think to myself, there's this deep dread that comes over me. And maybe it's illegitimate dread, but I think sometimes it's real. It's like reality telling me, Brian, no one was transformed during that monkey show you right. just did. Right. Like that was just nothing. That it was about you. It was about me. It was just about talking. It was about prancing around. It's about the conveying of information, mm -hmm. point A to point B. And, you know, and I hate those kind of soulless moments. And those happen a lot. And those are embarrassing to me afterward. And those feel bad, mm -hmm. you know, because I think anybody in their job, right? Like any, you don't have to be a professor. Like anybody in their job has those days yeah. where it's like you're just... You're just punching the clock. And I, I don't know, there's this sense of teaching. Don't you feel this way, Tim? Like teaching, it's almost like sacred. Like it has to be something like mystical. And if it's not that, and I just, I love that, but I hate it when that doesn't happen. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think for me, sometimes it's, I don't know for you all, it's performative. Like I'm very yes. glad that I actually did reader's theater and acting and such because sometimes it's like, I, I remember I was teaching a very early morning class and a student said, my goodness, how do you, you know, just have such energy? And I said, I am acting because yes, I do right. not have that kind of energy in the morning. But <laughs> but it's like, I've got to, because if I can't pull these 22 students with me right. because they're half asleep, then, you know, what kind of teacher am I? So, yeah. Do, do you have a routine you go through before you walk into the classroom? <laughs> like a little, like a mantra, a Abs little method kind of? Absolutely not. Oh. Uh, uh, it's, it is, I run in and quickly try to get technology working, which is, a, I don't know, a very, um, uh, not soul-crushing, but it's a very humbling endeavor. Like, well, this isn't working today, or I have no idea why you're not getting any sound today. Uh, <laughs> you know, such things. And um, and then quickly scrambling with the notes, and hopefully I've looked over what I'm talking about. For Do you wish day. you could go back pre-technology? I mean, because you've taught, been a teacher for a couple of decades. Like, you've, seen, you've seen some changes. You saw the birth of email. You I, saw these things. I did. I did slides when they were really slides. You did slides. Oh, nice. I mean, I guess as an artist, you were always kind of showing slides. But do you think that technology has ultimately hurt us in the classroom or helped us? That's a really good question. Um, yes and no. The access everyone has to technology can be problematic of um, uh, students double-checking you if you're giving information, which I have had a couple times, mm. um, or distracted by. I mean, I have a rule. I say, you know, in this classroom, this is a sacred environment. This is a sacred maker space. Mm. So specifically for the studio classes. So I say, 
you cannot use your technology even at break. You need to go outside and text mom that you're doing okay or whatever you need to do. Uh, and then in class, they have to ask my permission, like if they need to look up a picture of a butterfly because they're doing a butterfly. So, I mean, it's wonderful for the easy access to imagery uh, and such, but it also, part of that is just a burden because they're constantly distracted. Um, it, yeah, I don't know, Leah? Well, I have a question for you. It's sort of a follow-up question to that to the idea of like, you know, how you manage technology, which is how, okay, so how you manage a an ideal teaching aesthetic because you are an artist. So uh, by that I mean, so um, I've noticed that, like I try to, because I'm selling, like I'm, I'm, I'm selling like the history of ideas and why you should think this is important, right, you know, right. to students, which is like not typically something that they come into my classroom really wanting to know about. Right. So I do my, I like that Brian used the word prancing because I do my little song and dance. <laughs> I'm up there like, ta-da. Doesn't it feel like that? Oh, totally. I used the metaphor of a, um, a ringmaster, you know, in a circus. Yes. Um, but one of the things, like, sometimes that goes well. Like, sometimes I'm able to, you know, explain, like, this is what the early modern period was like. But then sometimes my own, like, visuals get in the way of, you know, mm-hmm. like, explain. Like, when I was um, expecting my first son, like, I taught all the way up until, like, the end. And my stu- it was so distracting to my students, like just my very presence, <laughs> oh my because I'm like like walking all weird and everything. Anyway, so I was thinking, like, how do you develop, like, as an artist? Do you think about that, like, developing a teaching aesthetic? Like, maybe it's what you show. Maybe it's like how you are in your own person, mm-hmm. like the the like setup of the classroom. I'm curious about that. Sure, um, a couple things come to mind. One is uh, I can be kind of playful, specifically in a studio class, and. Um, because I have conceptual issues I'm trying to get them to wrestle with, be it we're taking these concepts of African art and poetry and mushing this into learning something about casting glass or something. Oh, wow. So so there's a technical aspect conceptual. But on top of that, I'm often demoing. So one thing I'll often do in a demo, if they're not paying attention, is I'll start doing voices in order <laughs> to and So I'll demo in a whole accent or whatever, and just because they totally are watching. What me do students like? What what accent do they tend to enjoy well, you know, a lot? Uh, oh golly, I, I didn't do you, like, mean do you like a British. Uh, I didn't mean to go here, but a recent one has been Irish. Oh my oh. god! Because I w- I went to Ireland for a residency <laughs> for like you know residency. For, for three weeks, and they're really good people. And even I told them at the time, I'm starting to talk like you. So right. this or you know, I have an old woman. I do or whatever. It just kind of. Um, gets the classroom relaxed, turns them a bit to pay attention, focus, mm-hmm. laugh, have a good time. A, a thought that came to mind in something you said earlier, um, one, when you were saying your pregnancy, yeah, yeah. I totally lost my voice for about two weeks, in, oh. and but, but still could teach. I just couldn't speak. So I would put up a Word document and type everything out to the students. And it was odd. It freaked them out. Like, because wow. they were like, this is the weirdest thing. And I'm typing, why is why is this weird to you? Yeah. Like, I'm still here. I'm just answering Did you have, like, questions. the computer voice saying the words? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, hello, thank you, everyone, for coming like here. Like, <laughs> There you go. My teacher's Hal. <laughs> yeah. Ah! There we go. I've had that happen as well, though. Mm-hmm. I've lost my voice, and people were very freaked out just hearing my voice not coming out of my mouth like yeah. my voice. Like it usually does. Yeah. yeah. If you make these weird things, because I think the students get some sort of, like, you become this icon in their minds, Mm -hmm. especially the ones who, like, become, they take more than one class from you. And so Mm -hmm. then when you change one thing, they're just like, ugh, what are you you doing? This is different. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think, Tim, about this idea of the teacher at any level as being a kind of like a screen onto which people project things? We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, have students done that The ways that that plays out, you know, the way that students... You know, they'll see like their best qualities in you, and then suddenly it's like you're perfect, or they'll see like things they hate, and they're you know like d- does that like happen when to you? Seniors, yeah. sure, or, or um, or they see dad or whomever, oh, mom. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I try to um, pull the legs out underneath that pretty quickly mm. in terms of I'm pretty honest about me. Uh, so that they get me, I tr- uh, not necessarily what they think I am. Um, because I teach a majority of at least half, if not more, of my classes are art practice classes. So we're creating, we're making. There's a lot of interaction. It isn't me up front mm-hmm. in kind of a more of a performative or um, aspect. But uh, yeah, those are my thoughts on that. No, that's great. I'm just thinking how 
you know, because a lot of what I end up doing, and I think you do this as well, Brian, is is the more traditional lecture, just because you have like a certain amount of time to get a certain right. amount of information. Right. But I wonder how that would change if I if if I were to incorporate some more like practical oriented things into the classroom. I wonder how that would change things for the students. Right. Well, I, and I realize even as you say that, Leah, how much I. In my in my lecture mode, which I probably don't do as much lecturing as people think I do, but I I do in certain settings. I do. Well, you kind of have to if you're doing a survey. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think I become very comfortable with this idea that I'll put out like this image of myself, and I just let people deal with that, you know. Sure. And then it doesn't sure. have to be really me. I don't know. It sounds terrible, like I'm lying or something when I teach, and I don't feel like that. But almost like more like the acting thing, right. like you say, like yeah. you're trying to keep people engaged. Right. But there's a distance then that that's put, especially when you have a big crowd. Right. What frustrated me, I remember in, in my when I taught art history all the time, art history, I always got the highest ranks of any of my classes in terms of ratings, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. oh. But honestly, it was the least participatory on the student part. Interesting. Because it was me up there, right. you know, showing slides, talking about art, getting them passionate about, you know, the Romanesque era or, you know, mm -hmm. whichever era of art we're on or artist. And um, I actually was a little frustrated with that because I felt like it was relying on my acting ability or my ability to kind of work a crowd mm -hmm. rather than, are you really learning? Like, right. I hope you are. That's what I was saying before when you asked about a bad experience. I was trying to say an experience like that where you feel like, I know I'm doing this thing. And it happens, but what's really happening here? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that that's, anyway. Yeah, I was thinking, I had another art historian come in when I early started teaching, when we were when we were talking about bad experiences, who um, who I didn't realize I had been pronouncing all these names wrong. So Titian, which is a Renaissance artist, <laughs> I was calling Titan, and I forgot all the other oh. artists I was mispronouncing. Yeah. But Giacometti like, was Giacometti <laughs> or right, something. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so he's Those are hard like, names, actually. say, you know, or whatever. Veronese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, and so he made all these corrections. And also he pointed out, I say, um, all the time. And I realized I've already said my word lately. I'm noticing I say, which is right all the oh. time. Um, so I actually watched back that faculty lecture and I went, oh man, I said right like 20 times. Oh, the, right. le the lecture you gave right. to receive the Teacher right. of the teacher Year of Award. The year, yes, yeah. is the, the lecture that comes with that. Which is the most terrifying act I feel like I've ever really? done. Really? Oh, yes. Why? It's terrible. Well, You looked super comfortable. Well, because you have all your colleagues that you respect and care about and feel are just as good, if not much better teachers than you sitting behind you and you're, then you're in front of all these students. Oh. You're in the goofy like Harry Potter robe or costume we wear as you know wearing teaching your graduation we do it in our gown regalia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Regalia. so we're in our little regalia and um, it's a very formal event picture like is. a room packed with like a 1500 people yeah. and a faculty in their regalia sitting yeah. on stage behind the speaker and we're right. all watching right Tim. and they're all right there and luckily a very good team of friends were sitting right in the front but I told him, I talked to uh, Robin, our president, going up. I'm like, how do you do this, Robin? Because he does it all the time. And it's very kind of non-pulsed as he talks about whatever, yeah. right? And I had to coach myself. I've, I'm usually pretty good because I've spoken in chapel before. I've spoken to groups. But I sat in front of everybody and I'm like, I, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. And the like, I don't know, adult self, another part of me just was like, Timmerman, you wanted this. <laughs> be, be honest. You wanted you this. Wanted I love this. that pep talk. Like, be yeah. honest. Stop being a baby yeah. and get up there and do what you're supposed to be doing. Like, shut up. And so I'm like, okay, let's do this. So, so, oh you, so, so you went up and you did it. Well, yeah. you know, hearing how terrifying that is, Phil's, it's lucky for some of us that we'll never, we'll never <laughs> be teacher of the year and we'll <laughs> never have that. to do you, that. You I'll speak for that. myself. You don't know that. Um, where do you, just out of left field, another yeah. teaching question. No good. Uh, if you were to consider on a spectrum, like two sides, like on the one side, teaching is about nurturing. It's about people feeling like they belong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, teaching is about disturbing people, wrecking people, kicking their legs out. Where do you think where do you think your own teaching style kind of falls or how do you negotiate those things? I I think I'm a little disarming for students. Like I've had students say to me, I can't believe I got a C in this class. You're so nice. Oh. oh. Or I can't believe I failed this class. Like you're nice. And I'm like, look, I like you as a person. You did terrible work. And so <laughs> That is so funny. So that so you're the both. Well, yeah. And so I um oh gosh, I remember the student coming up to me, showing me a piece of work, and she's like, What do you think? And I said, Well, and I started talking about things and um, I said, look, your colors are ugly. Like this, this turquoise color does not go with mustard. It's like, I still remember the color. And I'm like, <laughs> this is terrible. So then that student left and then another student came back and they said, that student's crying in the room oh next my door. Gosh. And I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to make the student cry. But I think, 
I have a tendency to be very um, frank with students, but also am uh, lighthearted or whatever when I talk to them. But um, I'm thinking of another student I made cry when I said their artwork was cliche because they kept using like either a heart or a coffee cup. Oh. And I'm like, look, this is super cliche. I wonder, you, I understand you want to use this, but you've used this before. And so I don't, I don't want to sell them short. So I tend to be really frank, but also I'm very friendly. Or mm-hmm. I was thinking about, I had, um, uh, I've had this several times. I haven't had this happen in years, but I've had students come to me and like argue with me over a piece. Like, look, you know, this is this is a B or this is an Ouch. A. Why did you do this? And I'm like, look, this is not this is not a quality work. And they're like, you gave me. I'm like, no, you gave me you work. Earned. Right? Yeah. You gave me work that's a C. It did not meet these tenets of the assignment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they argue with me and that, no, it's really a B or an e, really an A. And then as they leave the room, they throw the piece away. <gasps> it is, I've had that happen several times. Really? Whoa. Yes. And I'm wow. like, look, you knew it was a C or you knew it was a D. You know, that's not good work. You threw that Damn. thing away. You weren't like, I'm going to share it. I'm going to put this on my wall. Like, no. So all that to say, I think... I um I think I disarm them a bit. Now, who knows? Students could be listening right now and go, that is not true. <laughs> Tim is whatever. But uh yeah, I in that I I'm very cheery, accessible, and as I've said to students, like, look, I like you and whatever. I this is still a bad project or Well, you're like the subject matter that you're teaching, I feel it comes with its own set of challenges because very few people in my like in historian world, you really have to like be a highly specialized studier of it, like graduate mm-hmm. school, like PhD mm-hmm. work, before you start to feel like this is a part of me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that about my dissertation in our book, but um, I didn't really feel like that when I was taking random history courses. But I would imagine every student who comes into an art class is like, I'm giving you my soul. And so it's like, right. you're great giving my soul yeah. a C. I was know? just going to ask about that. Yeah. Like, I think this is something that anybody could really learn from, whether no matter what you do, what your craft is, whether you're an artist or even for aspiring podcasters, anybody right. out there to just think <laughs> how to handle criticism in a creative enterprise. Yeah. How do you like talk about that. that? How do you talk with students about handling criticism? I mean, I'm sure there are just obvious things like you just got to deal with it. This is, you know, you've got to fail a lot, but I don't know. Talk more about that. What's how do you, how do you teach people how to handle criticism? I think part of it is you have to start the whole making art idea or creating a podcast or singing a song or putting out a television show, right? I I tell students, I really think making art, being writing a book is an arrogant act because mm. what I'm asking mm. for is people's time. I'm saying the quality of what I'm doing is worth your time. Wow. So I said, you've got to make work that's worth my time. Like oh. I've got to come in and there's something about that piece that I look at and go, I want to spend time with that. And then I'm going to be interested in your message, your concepts, your ideas, right? But mm-hmm. there's got to, the work itself has to be engaging enough that it pulls me in. And so I, th- and you know, I, I don't know if that's your experience too with podcast, book, whatever. There's been plenty of books that I've gotten halfway through and then I've chucked going, this is not worth my time. Right. Right. Like you felt yeah. disrespected almost by the, <laughs> yes. the artist, the creator there. Yes. Like, or podcast that you're like, stop. I mean, hopefully no one's yeah. done that yeah. right yeah. now. As but, people you know. are hitting the <laughs> yeah, right. stop button uh, right now. <laughs> As an artist, I have a question for you. So um, I remember hearing this this analogy made to um, like musicians. So there are people like um, Beethoven who didn't create a ton of work, but the work that he creates is like masterpiece level. Yeah. And then there are people like Bach who apparently, legend has it, would wake up every day and write a piece of music. God um, bless him. And both of them are like masters of their craft. Yeah. Um, at, but they have different styles of working how would you rate your, I mean, like, where would you put yourself as an artist? Are you like the everyday do stuff? Are you the wait till I'm inspired? Yeah, I think um, I'm thinking of like um, Melissa Gilbert's book, Big Magic, right? I don't know if either of you guys have no. poked around no, that book. Really it. wonderful book. But the idea of you've got to keep taking care of the muse is some of her, kind of her thinking. And also it ties into like Madeline Angle's Walking on Water, a variety of oh, those books. Like, I think you need to kind of keep showing up in the studio, like even you guys may have felt the same with your podcast where sure, you're like, sure. keep showing up or keep writing. You have to keep showing up and then the muse starts taking over ideas. Like I've had plenty of ideas I want to say I haven't tended to that then have just disappeared because I didn't mm. take care of them or do them. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
to whatever degree I can. And as both you guys know, as educators, I mean, we have seasons that we can really work, like summer on our art practice or writing practice, whatever that is. And then seasons where really we just need to tend to these, you know, 20-year-olds we've been given to take care of. Right. Um, or, or, you know, or children or whatever yeah. at the time, right? So um, for me, I have to keep drawing. I have to keep working. So one thing I did actually, I came in at Fox as the department chair in what was then the art department. And I told myself, you know, as any administrative type position, there's lots of meetings. Brian, you and I were talking about that initially, <laughs> right? There's ton, tons of meetings. So I would always We were talking s- about meetings before we came on the air. Yes. Okay. yes. Pre-meetings. Was not recorded and we shall were, never we're be repeated what I was saying in the pre-meeting. Yeah. Previously <laughs> yeah. on the show, yeah. dot, dot, dot. So, but I intentionally thought I'm going to bring my sketchbook and I'm going to draw in, in meetings yeah. oh, because cool. I, it's something I can listen, take notes and draw mm-hmm. and, um, to in in terms of I wanted if someone said what are you I could say I'm an artist and an art professor and this and not like I'm an art professor and if I have a chance I'll make something right you know right. so I feel like you have to keep at the practice and the nice thing is it became established that oh Tim draws in meetings rather than like Tim what are you doing type thing so kind of keeping at it so that then when I got in the studio and could get messy or get in the shop and get messy. I uh, those ideas were already already cooking around. It even motivated me to work smaller mm-hmm. and uh, even traveling. Oh, interesting. Traveling with students, I've done very small pieces where I gave myself an assignment. Like every day, I'm making a piece of art just to keep at the craft because you you have to work with what you've got. Like um, who what artist? I want to say it was um, an artist down in L.A. Um, uh, anyway, I'm not gonna remember the name, but um, he uh, was making these really small works at a time, and then people finally asked him, "Why are you working so small?" And he's like, "I just have my kitchen table to work on." Oh. So, so you work within the limits that you're given, and I think the best art comes out of parameters or giving obstructions to yourself to work in, and thinking like, oh man, I'll be a really good artist if I have a gigantic canvas to work on, or if I could just make that movie, then I'm gonna be a great artist. Right. Where Work with what you're given. Like if it means you're just doing some goofy stuff on your phone. Wow. Or you're just sketching, like you know, while you're you just nursed the baby and you set her down and now you're gonna draw for a little bit or sew or yeah. I don't know, or dance or whatever that may be. Work within the limitations you are and and that will keep growing your practice and what you do. And mm-hmm. actually you may make better work as those little interesting things than you ever would have doing like a gigantic Picasso Guarnica or something, you know. That's really encouraging. I love that. I I can't think of anything better to to close off this yeah, conversation. Let's just with. let's just let's just die happy. Work with what in you that got. Right, and, right, everybody, every both of you. I want you to go. I want you to get to work. I want you to work on some assemblage. Yep, yep. Leah, what do you do artistically? Uh, <laughs> Talk to me. Little. Come on. I seriously, I don't. Some scrapbooking. Do no, oh, some scrapbooking? I started like five scrapbooks that I've totally. Ditched. There you go. Some interpretive dancing. Um. No, you know, I used to sing. Did you? Yeah, years ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll All get right. back to just, it. I'll do it. Even just put on, like, who would you put on and I, sing along to or something? Well, I sing my song, or I sing my son a lullaby, and mm. I, Billy Joel. Mm. Yeah, it's great. But that's it. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's an even better place to close, right? There. That was fun talking to an artist who's oh. also a professor, who's also an exceptional at what they do. And also just the nicest person and so much fun. That was really great. Oh, we could have done that for eight times the length yeah. that we just did, yeah. if not two to three times. Thank I wanna, you, Tim. I want to take a turn here and bring this somehow back to the to the religion angle. I mean, yes. what's, I don't know, when you think about spirituality, when you think about religion, when you think about faith, when you think about Christianity, and you're thinking about teaching and the teacher and this motif, what, uh, what are you thinking about? Is that too open-ended? Well, you know, I was actually thinking about the idea, like how— how religious communities think about teachers and teaching mm-hmm. in in churches yeah. or in other in, in non-christian um religious communities when i think about how they um like what role they give teachers yeah. in their midst i think yeah. that probably says a lot about mm. you know like what they think they're teaching people how they think they're doing it for mm-hmm. example i've been a sunday school f- teacher for many a year mm. have you ever done sunday school teaching oh yeah totally yeah and and I've said it a million times and I'll say it a million times more. Like if you want to learn something of a complex, nuanced, theological, spiritual idea, the best way to do it is to try and teach 
five to seven-year-olds. Oh, yeah. You know, like if you're talking about the Trinity with a five-year-old. Oh, yeah. Because they don't know anything about respectability or, you know, they're so (laughs) unselfconscious. So they'll just ask you really good questions. Oh, exactly. Really hard to answer questions. And so, but I find that Sunday school teaching is like the hardest thing to get. So like most in practice, most religious communities, or at least most Christian communities, I don't think they value educating their young in whatever tradition, because it's just really hard to get people excited about teaching them. Um, Very difficult. I mean, and and there's even been, I think, you know, in in case you've stumbled upon this podcast and and you're not familiar with Christian church structures, Sunday school is just kind of a catchword for usually churches besides the main kind of sermon and the main event, the communion, mm -hmm. or people do, they'll have often before the service or after a kind of like Christian education hour. With for all ages, you know, sometimes you'll be teaching kids. I did like puppet shows for kids. You and did. Then, That's oh great. yeah, I mean there was stuff like that, and so. But people have argued too that these things have just faded off the scene. Yeah. Now because you can get so much teaching, you can just go on the internet and you can hear anything. Like you can hear the world's best in these sound bites, and so why would you go and hear a deficient teacher like me doing a doing a puppet show, or whatever, <laughs> when you could get your middle schooler or something amazing, you know, like that. Well, I've got a really practical reason for that, yeah. for why it's it's still important. I mean, I think there's the the whole, and we've talked about this before on the show, um, the whole thing about just we're we're losing human contact with mm. with other human beings. So there's just the value of just coming in contact with another human being. But I think there's also the value in having like a network of adults who are paying attention to kids in different mm. different types of relationships and roles. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, my um, my spouse and I were foster parents for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, the there were two children who were in our home. And one of the ways that um, we, like one of the reasons why we felt comfortable or not felt comfortable, we were, I don't know, sort of comforted by the fact that even when they weren't living with us, even when they were with biological family who we weren't sure were um, safe options for them, mm-hmm. they were in this little Sunday school class and there was like a Sunday school teacher right. who was paying attention to them. And mm-hmm. so I think there's value in having just multiple different kinds of people mm-hmm. in in different children's lives. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I like that. Well, you know, for me— my experience in teaching and in terms of religion, I guess if you want to call it that, is weird because like my teaching topic is the Bible. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's I've kind always, of ground zero for any Protestant It's ground student, zero for Protestants. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe even, you know, Catholics to some Certainly, extent as well. Yeah. A different, in different ways. It's foundational. And so, yeah. And so it's it's like my, my, my career has always had these things like tied in together. I mean, sometimes like even joking and being like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a professional Christian <laughs> as, you know, like that's a weird way to think of one's like professorial career. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so to teach, but, but nobody would say that if they were like an art professor or whatever, you know, depending on what you teach. And and obviously not all people who teach, you know, uh, history of Christianity or biblical studies are Christians or have any particular faith background or whatever. So I don't know, to me, I'm just always in this like weird, that this like weird, like stew of like, you know, trying to be a good representative and then, you know, trying to do that in a church community, but then also in a classroom. And then how are those two things different? Yeah. And then does the Sunday school, does the church education, does that become more like a classroom? And then how do you do that really well? How do you do it with kids, man? Oh, the kids thing. I thought I would have such an easier time before I had kids connecting with my kids in terms of like teaching and things like that. And I don't know, just, it's just, it's hard to do actually. And I mean, I think you brought this up or you kind of implied it earlier that the model of the traditional Sunday school classroom is relatively recent. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like we've always done, sure. you know, the Sunday school hour. Right. And so there's lots of different ways to teach children mm-hmm. about, you know, whatever kind of religious or spiritual thing you're trying to impart to them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be like a something that imitates a public school right. classroom right. the way we often right. you know think of them so I wanted to ask this to Tim Timmerman when he was here talking with us but our, our session just ended too soon I know. so now, now I'm asking so fun. now I'm asking you okay a hard turn here from our topic oh. what, what are things that students do kind of just general things or even specific things that they do that you love or things that oh. they do that or things that they do that you hate <laughs> okay hopefully things easier to think of the former love. yes things that I love okay. Um, I love it when students 
um, surprise me with their perspective on something. It's really, mm. I mean, you, when you kind of get to know students, um, it's it's easier than you might think to be able to predict what their their thing is. You know, like this student's always going to ask a question related to historical context. This student's always going to ask a question related to some sort of liberal fundamentalist like point of orthodoxy or right. or whatever. Um, and I like it when a student is really deeply thinking and then kind of just asks something that or makes a comment that is outside of their kind of ideological or intellectual wheelhouse. I love that. That's really exciting oh, to that, me. That totally, that, that, that lights a fire in my own mind to hear that because I feel that same way. Because you will get students, I think sometimes students out there, I think sometimes you're you're just so, so eager to impress. Right. Professors that you just want to like stay in this lane and just say this thing over and over again. And it's, it, it takes, you know, it ruins the authenticity of that moment. I mean, I'm sure students have all kinds of things like this that they think about us. Like we ruin, sure, sure, you're I'm the sure one, we do you don't, don't say that I ruin the authenticity. Yeah. It's you, your fault. You ruin the authenticity. <laughs> okay. That's probably true too. But, but yeah, that's, that seems totally true. I, I love it when students just are able to let their guard down and give yes. some kind of very raw reaction to something. Mm-hmm. Like say you read a poem or something and people are like, this is so depressing or like, this is morally <laughs> disgusting. And here's why, like, you know, and instead of just being this kind of like right down the middle, like everyone, everything is respectable. Everything's fine. You know, nothing's yes. too great, but just like really go for it. Or, you know, I remember, you know, many times actually when I've taught topics, like difficult topics, like the problem of evil as a philosophical concept and things like that, when students will just get, you know, when the emotions finally come down near the end of the semester and people are just willing to just belt out like, you know, sometimes in very direct ways, like what they've actually been thinking. And I, I think to myself, I wish I were a better teacher and I could get us to that point sooner. Right. But I also think if we could start there, how deep could you go? If, if we could all let our guards down like that, it's hard to do. And I, I'm certainly not good at it, but. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'll, I'll tell you, so the flip side of that related to that, Yeah. what I hate that students do, yeah. I hate um, when students belittle other students, mm. um, either by kind of trying to puff the, themselves up or um, or actually, be, you know what I actually hate, maybe even, well, it, equally or whatever, is if they belittle the source material. Like, oh, so yes. I, you know, I teach from like dead people, right? Mm-hmm. And if I've assigned something, it's because I think this is a dead person that matters, that has shaped somehow, right. some way that we see the world. And m- there are many times when I've had students who just say, like, I just don't like so-and-so, or I just think they're stupid, or I just right. think they're, and I'm like, I don't, you know. Yeah, the world's greatest thinkers are stupid, but you're you're definitely not, though. Right. You're great. You, college junior, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. why I, you know, I'm trying to think of someone. It's typical. Off the top of my head um, that might be someone that they would just assume that they know more that, or if they like, you know, historically, if they read their own kind of current socio-political conversations onto the mm-hmm. past without nuance, because yeah. certainly we can judge people, um, it, you know, by our standards, but also we have to acknowledge that they were having different conversations and stuff like that. So right. those kinds of things, it's really just a lack of humility, you know, lack of being yeah. able to think that you have something yeah. to learn. Yeah. What, what about you? Yo, no, same. Like arrogance in the classroom is yeah. just a killer. I mean, it's a killer when professors do it too. Right? Yeah. You know, so. Shuts everything down. Yeah. Or, or or even the flip side of what you were saying before when people just, I, I don't like it when students try to like impress me in class. I don't like trying to be, imp- I don't like people trying to impress me. Do you think they do that a lot? I bet they do. Well, you know, sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. I just think sometimes people will get in this mode where they think that's what a classroom is. Right. It's like a time to like show that you already know the material somehow. And I'm pretty sure, you know, and this is no offense to you 18 to 22 year olds, but you, you pretty much, it's, it's not the impressed stuff. It's not going to happen the way that, that you might traditionally think. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you don't really, or this thing, like I heard someone joke and it's like, I could get on either side of this joke, but someone said to me, I heard a, I heard another professor who shall be nameless said, oh, you know how people say, I learn as much from my students as they, they learn from me. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> what, you know, what a stupid say. I don't learn from, and you know, I, but you know, once I understand what they're saying. Sure, sure. I've you always lot, learn when you teach. I've learned a lot socially and you learn that way. But like, yeah, it's, it's not like, oh, little Johnny or Susie starts to go on a lecture. And I'm like, hmm, what a great point. <laughs> right. That's never happened. I don't think that's ever going to happen. 
I'm sorry. Like, you're just, it's not going to be that way. So that kind of stuff, that could be a part of, of what I don't like too. So just no one, no one, don't, don't try to impress, be open, yeah. be vulnerable, be surprised. Well, some of the best professors that I had um, were people who could admit when they didn't know something. And they were like world authorities. So yeah, yeah, and that's that path toward the you know the anti arrogance path that that we all need to take as teachers and students. So Brian, Kitch Corner, Kitch Kitch Corner. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. Kitch Corner. Okay. Um, so we really need a. We're, we're going to come we, up with a this. Theme. Is where we decompress at this yeah. time. You've just we've just taken you through the ringer. We've taken you through memories, emotions, yeah. thoughts. And now we're going to talk about some sort of kitschy aspect of our current cultural moment and its connection with our subject matter for the episode and also with religion slash spirituality. And the reason why I'm talking in such a yeah, laid us. back voice. Why are you talking like this? It's because we're going to be talking about gurus. Yes. Kind of the ultimate spiritual teacher. Has it? Is it kind of like part of this idea of having a lifestyle brand? Is that, is our lifestyle oh, brands part of this? Yeah. So for example... Okay, I can't do it forever. Um, I'm gonna, Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. I dare you. <laughs> it was a dare, people, so now I have to. Yes. So like Goop, um, Gwyneth Paltrow is known as kind of like a guru of lifestyle branding for really mm-hmm. wealthy people who spend a lot of money on random— I think a lot of actresses have these now, though, too. I know. She, she to me, seems kind of like She's the like number leading one, character. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, Gwyneth. Gwyneth. Yeah, and and very unselfconsciously privileged wealthy. So it's like everyone can spend $25 on a juice mix for a day. You know, like one serving of a juice mix. For your kids. For your kids. Or like a special. Or like a boutique cucumber from like Argentina that you can (laughs) put over your eyes. Like in that type scene of the woman with the clay mask. Exactly. And the the cucumber slices over the eye. Have you ever done a cucumber slice over your eyes? Uh, no, no. I don't, I'm not into spa culture at all. Oh, really? Makes me nervous. Have you? I've done some things like that, but not, you know, it's a a long story. It's not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) I have done, I have done masks, face masks. Yeah. Yeah. Are they for everybody? They're for everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it actually, it was way more refreshing than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, but who is your, like, when you think of like a guru who kind of, you know, combines spirituality, lifestyle, wisdom, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what comes to mind for you? Does it have to be like an established actual guru or can it just be like a fictional character from like a TV show or something? Anything. I feel like you can you can gain w- the wisdom of the ages from any the wisdom, a variety of sources. The wisdom of the ages. Yeah. Well, so one one very popular guru that I have started listening to in podcasts at times and I just find him I, I can't say that I haven't learned anything from it, but I can't say that I enjoy it. It's, yeah. it's kind of a form of hate listening, but oh, I, I love but to I, hate listen. But I don't hate. I'm not. You're you're a great hate listener. I am. You're a huge you, great you are, hate listener. <laughs> Leah just flashed me her computer screen of something she hate listens to, and I'm not even going to say. We can't even say. I'm not even going to say yep, what it is because you. just too many Trusted hearts. Colleague too many right hearts here. to be offended, but. You know, but like I've started listening to the Tony Robbins podcast. Oh, Tony Robbins, he's the ultimate. It's like he's on cocaine like all the time. And he's, and so <laughs> I just imagine like being like dealt with by him. Like he'd be like, what are your goals? What are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, you do know, you do know. Tell me, you know, and oh just like, gosh. and just like listening to this kind of stuff. So he's, I think of him like, and, and I, I'm kind of like a secret hate listening, secret admirer of Tony Robbins, but. A better guru, I think, for 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 another. If I were to think of a fictional character, uh-huh. not that Tony Robbins isn't a fictional character. Well, yeah, because he think, is. I think he must be. You know, I thought of. Did, did you watch Downton Abbey? Um. Yes. 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 Yeah, I thought of Lord Grantham. Oh, is he's he my guru? he's my oh, guru. Oh, really? What? Oh my gosh! Explain I, that. I to identify me. with him not so much in the money aspect, which I do not have. <laughs> But more like in the, I don't know, just the way he like, he's kind of, I, I feel like he's kind of like my spirit animal of a, of a of a guru character because 
here's here's how I'm like I'm Lord. baffled by this. Here's how I'm like Lord. <laughs> explain, explain. I just see him. He's like trying to uphold like traditional ideals, and he's okay. always like, "We okay. need to do." I can't do a British accent, but you know, okay. we need to do X, Y, Z. But then when he's really confronted with reality, he always relents. You know how he's always like oh, relenting. Okay, okay. And I think I'm very much like that. Like I'm kind of a little bit stiff upper You're lip at idealist. times. I'm a little bit of an idealist. I'd like to keep things at you know all in order, and I kind of feel like I have that role in my life at times. But then you're confronted with reality, and I I am actually a compassionate person at heart, which he is. For sure, for sure, yeah. And so I always kind of go there, and I think I've learned like life lessons from watching him do that on the show. Wow. I so am there you go. So I just, I, that was not what I was expecting. If I had time to think all. about it, I might have come up with less funny examples, but that's just what comes <laughs> in my great. mind. That's just a raw window. I love it. But Into your mind. And now it's your turn. Yeah. Gurus, what are you? Gurus. Well, I... So I have a confession that one of the things that I enjoy on in my downtime is um, I like to watch like televangelist types. So the Tony Robbins thing, I, was, I, I yeah. totally get. Yeah. Um, and so I really enjoy um, mostly because I study performance. And so I'm, I'm always interested in watching like how do people do what they do. So I get mesmerized mm-hmm. by certain people. Uh, for a while, and this comes from my own um, tradition, I was really into Catherine Kuhlman, who is oh, yeah. this old-timey mm-hmm. televangelist. And there's something about her voice that's like this perfect sing-songy. She's like a female Mr. Rogers. Really? And then she's she wears these like glittery drapey dresses and oh, yeah. she's like always just just so happy and you know so i would get like obsessed with these i get into these particular figures and i'm always interested in like how are they combining because i think i think um now there's like a classical i guess definition of guru but when we're using it here in this popular sense mm-hmm. i think we just mean someone who like is sort of a guide um, to good living or yeah. to the good life. A or teacher of the masses. A teacher of the masses. Yeah. And I think implicit in that message is this idea that um, that you can make your life better, which mm. I question that, you know, whether or not that's even possible for a lot of different reasons. But the idea that it's it's in your hands. And so there's kind of an optimism behind there that I just find fascinating. But if there was like a, a teacher-like <laughs> spirit animal – for me, it's yes. probably Tina Fey's character in Mean Girls. <laughs> Do oh. you remember? She's a teacher who's yes. like totally harried and put upon, and she yes. also bartends. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this That's one you. scene where she runs into her students, and she's got her bartending uniform, and it's like this vest with a bunch of buttons on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have... I've always thought I was like, "Yep, that, that. is great. the teacher that I would." If I, especially if I was a uh, like a high school teacher, that would be me for sure. I thought about working at REI uh, on the side of my job, and I would. You would love that, shouldn't I? Do it. You should do it just to kind yeah. of get in a different headspace, make a little cash, and mm-hmm. get some some sweet deep discounts <laughs> on hiking. You should do gear. it. Why and do you I could not? be like the. The teacher outdoorsman guru. You know, that's the way to money is guru status. What, what, what have we been doing with our lives? I don't know. I don't know. Let's, we need to change up our whole operation. We should get like a goofball lifestyle brand on the weird religion. Oh page. my gosh. Wouldn't that be great? Let's do it. Like things people need to have to like yeah. really be the kind of person who would listen to this podcast, but also live the weird religion life. Yep. I'm thinking sponsorships. I'm thinking. I'm thinking face. Clay ma- masks, <laughs> face masks. Yep. Face masks, yep. face yep. clay masks. While you watch whatever sci-fi show we were recommending. Oh, yeah. Like virtual reality goggles, <gasps> but there's like nothing playing really, or it's just like something. I love it. Let's do it. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. That's what we're still calling our listeners, weirdos. With total admiration. <laughs> I like it. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Kai Blessing and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Roger Nam and to the Kern Foundation for sponsoring this season and to Trigger the Studio Dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.